0: To say something that should always be said more than it is, and that is for Diane I to express our appreciation to this congregation for uh, everything that uh, you do for us and for the many gifts that are brought our way. Um, it, um, it's always overwhelming to us, your generosity, and the many years that I've been here, um, that, uh, as I, I think about Paul's words we've been studying this even this month, that... Um, he got the gift from Aphrodite and he says, I don't need any more, I am full. Uh, and your gift has supplied all my needs. And that's the way I feel about what this congregation has done for us since the very beginning. I have never needed anything that you didn't supply physically and emotionally and spiritually. Your support is always uh, so appreciated and I don't, we don't say that enough. Also, might mention that sometimes people uh, uh, tell me when I'm exiting the building after my sermon that I stepped on their toes. And I try to make that uh, turn into a good thing and say, well, maybe your toe needed to be stepped in. I don't, stepped on. I don't really feel bad about that. But I want to mention to you today that, that that doesn't go the other way around because I dropped a vise on my toe this weekend and broke it. Uh, and I'm stumbling around. And if you step on my toe, I will not take it as a good thing. Uh, so if I back away from you when you walk towards me, it's just self-protection because if you stepped on my toe, I think I'd pass out right now. But uh, so... Uh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate so much uh, uh, you being considerate of that. Anybody here from Kentucky? Yeah, there's people from Kentucky. Arkansas, anybody here from Arkansas? <laughs> Nobody from Arkansas. Okay, let me tell you a story about some people from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> you probably heard the story about a family, um, uh, family that visited the big city for the very first time, lived way out in the middle of nowhere, and they went to visit, visit the uh City for the very first time, uh, and they went into this big building, and there were these—they were absolutely amazed because there was these two big silver walls, and they kept going back, opening and closing, going back and forth, and they couldn't figure out what it was because they'd never seen an elevator before. So they were watching closely, examining it, and, uh, and an older lady in her 80, 80s, uh, sort of bent over, walked up to the door, and the door—the walls moved, and she stepped into a little room. The walls closed back up and they watched and there were lights at the top that went one direction and then the lights started going in the other direction Uh, and all of a sudden they watched again. The doors opened up and this 20 year old beautiful woman stepped out. (laughs) And the father turned to the son and said, hurry, go get your mom. (laughs) Things change sometimes and we don't understand why they change. Uh, sometimes things change right before our eyes and we're amazed that things didn't stay the way that they were or that things aren't always the way that they were before. And even though we may not understand how the change occurred, the evidence is right before us. And I want to take for a couple of moments and talk about change from the standpoint of the gospel message. There are sometimes when something happens and we experience something and we realize this is monumental, this changes everything. That uh, there are some changes maybe that are minimal, that really don't impact us and then something happens like we have a baby and we say that changes everything. Or we get married and now it's all different than it was before. The Bible says a lot about change. The Bible describes this aspect of change from the standpoint of individuals And I want to suggest to you as we start the lesson this morning that God specializes in changing people. That when we read through the scriptures, one thing that becomes obvious is that God expects people to be different than they were before. And that he makes provisions for people to be different than they were before. And the gospel message is presented to the world by both Jesus and the apostles as something that changes everything in a person's life. And that the message of the gospel is the most powerful change agent that you and Eric I could ever consider. And you think about that from the standpoint of even the opening up of the New Testament. As the New Testament opens up, the promise of the kingdom is beginning to be fulfilled. And God's bringing to fruition things that he said centuries before. And so Jesus appears on the scene. And he begins his public ministry. There's John the baptizer standing before people and saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus appears to begin preaching, and his message is the same Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as important as the event this was, the way that this coming of the kingdom is portrayed, the way it's announced to the world, is that what's going to happen here is things are going to change, but the first change that needs to be made before the kingdom ever arrives is that you must change. You must repent. So the kingdom itself is prefaced by the need for every person to look at their life and change. Now when we view the gospel message from that perspective, when we take that approach to the scriptures, what we recognize is that the gospel is not just something to be accepted, but rather to be obeyed. It's not just a message that I take in and say, oh yeah, that's right. That God expects me to hear this message and to hear this story and to react in some way and that the gospel message is not there just to change what I know, but rather it's there to change who I am. If it doesn't do that in my life, then the gospel is no use to me. The good news is not good news at all. It has no really power in my life, even though it is intrinsically power itself to save individuals, unless I recognize that the gospel is a message of change. When we think about this aspect of change in the scripture. We, rec- we come to recognize that it is portrayed to us, the gospel, the effect, the impact of the gospel in people's lives is portrayed to us in precisely this way, in more than one image. That if God would get anything across to us in the preaching of the story of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles about the impact of the gospel message, is that God is going to change things up. That if you become a Christian, you will not be the same as you were before. How does the gospel message impact people? In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Greek word for new here is the word kahinos, which indicates something that's new in relationship to form or quality or type. So here's something that's old and something comes along that's new, and we might use the word different. We might even use the word in terms of the connotation of the New Testament word here, that this is better. It's new and therefore it is improved in that regard. But it's new in terms of type. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 10, the Apostle Paul uses another word in connection with that. When a similar statement, he says, we have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of his creator. And he uses the Greek word for new, neos, To describe the new man. And that word means to be recently new or new in time. That this is a new experience to you. So the man is new because he's just now become new. But he goes on to say that he is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of his son. And the word renewed there is anakinio which is a derivative of the word we just looked at a few moments ago. Which means to make new in terms of quality. So what does Paul say in Colossians chapter 3? That we have put on a new man in time. This is a new experience. And yet this newness is not a one time event. But we are constantly being renovated. We are constantly being rejuvenated or made new again to the image of God. Now, I mentioned those words, however might, familiar you might be with them, or however significant we find them to be, to, to get us to recognize that what the scriptures portray to us is that the change that the gospel anticipates and the change that the gospel creates in a person is a comprehensive change. That this is not just a change of a single moment when we're forgiven of our sins and that we go from being a sinner to a saint but rather it is a continuous change. The old man is replaced by a completely new person at the time of conversion, and then he's constantly renewed or made new to be in the image of Christ. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Paul says, "...not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior." Now we might consider that washing of regeneration is a reference to baptism and I think it, it, there's a lot of evidence to point that way but certainly the idea of renewal and regeneration are used in the same way here in this passage. That it's a bringing back to life of something that was dead and it's a renewing or renovating by the Holy Spirit of the individual through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of that comes through Jesus Christ. So the change is a recreation. It's also this aspect here. Of being born again. In John chapter three, Jesus spoke to a well-educated religious leader named Nicodemus, and in that and in that conversation, he focused on the necessity of a complete change of this man's life. He was a man who probably thought in his own life he was pretty much where he needed to be. He certainly was was cognizant of the Old Testament scriptures and the nature of the kingdom of God and the idea of the God that he was one of God's chosen people by being in the nation of God. And yet, Jesus speaks to him. One who he considered to be a prophet and a great teacher in Israel. And says, everything has to change. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus may not have understood what, it, what, it, what was involved in terms of being born again. Because he said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born But one thing he certainly understood in Jesus' words and the thing that perplexed and startled him no doubt the most is that what Jesus was describing here was not just a little bitty change. It was starting all over again. The person has to go back to the very beginning and start all over again. He must be reborn. In the 2nd chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So he says here, Paul says, that we are being transformed. In Romans chapter 12, he uses the same word. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In both of these verses, the word transformed, metamorphu means to change from one form to another. It's the idea you hear that you have something and then it transitions into something else it may it is even used to the aspect of being a complete change from something from something that it was not to something that it now is from a caterpillar to a butterfly and so that's what this aspect of being changed by God uh, how is presented now i believe that's a powerful principle but is it really what we see around us can we look out and see the evidence of change Sometimes it's not so easy to see. Christian marriages fail just like other marriages fail. Christians fail as parents, and their children go their own way. Christians sometimes speak like the world, they act like the world, they aspire to the goals of the world around them. They seek the things of this life and not the spiritual things that they that they that they know about. And so sometimes you look at a Christian's life, and maybe sometimes we look at our own lives, and you realize. Is there really this transformation? Have I really been born again? Am I really being renewed and made something that I wasn't before by Jesus? The implication of the gospel message is that we all need to be recreated. And that's an important implication to understand. That when the gospel comes on the scene, the preaching of Jesus, not just, well, these folks need this and these folks need some, might need some of this, but these folks are okay. It's that everyone is in need of changing And that the gospel provides the ability to change everyone who will submit to the call of the Spirit and the words of the Spirit. Now we have to come to grips with whether or not we believe that or not. Because sometimes we might come to intellectually understand that that's true. The gospel is for everyone. And we say the gospel is for everyone sometimes the idea that everyone needs the benefits of the gospel. But it also implies that all of us, you see, without the gospel, we do not have the gospel will be lost. And that the change that God expects the gospel to make in one person is also applicable to all of us. And some people find the gospel message irrelevant or even maybe offensive because they see themselves as being good enough. And they might discount what God would call upon them to do, even acts of obedience, because they feel like this is not doesn't add anything to who I am. Many Christians are not serious about spreading the gospel even to their neighbors because their neighbors are pretty good folks. You know, they're not much unlike me and they're honest and they're good people. And so there's not a motivation to tell them about Jesus because what what does Jesus have for them that they really need? They're pretty good. And what the gospel would tell to us would be look out at our neighbors and we look at ourselves that what God's providing for you is absolutely what you need. You need an absolute complete makeover. You need to change to repent. You are not what God has in mind and so there's one image of change that truly indicates I believe that Jesus changes everything for the Christian that I want to consider in the rest of our lesson and that is we are made alive when we are dead you ever witnessed a resurrection <laughs> ever seen one of those we know about them we read about them we believe in one but have you ever seen one It'd be mind-boggling to contemplate that, to go to the funeral home of a close friend and thinking, well, I know he's dead, but that's not what we go there to think about, is it? We might have some perspective that there's a resurrection for him somewhere in the future because he's a Christian, because he has a relationship with God. But when it comes to death itself, we recognize that this is a situation you see Where there are no maybes, maybe it'll change, maybe the circumstances are not what they ought to be, you know. And there's some things that are like that. It could snow here next week. It probably won't, and you'll leave if it does. But it could happen, you see. And that cancer that they diagnosed, it could go away. It could be next year, it won't even be around anymore. But if you're dead, you're dead. And tomorrow it won't change you'll still be dead. So the idea that a person could come back to life is a picture of the ultimate change, the drastic, powerful change that you and I can't contemplate in any aspect of our physical lives. So it's significant for us to notice that that's exactly how the Bible presents the change that God intends for our own life. The effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a resurrection from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2 he begins in verse one, says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you all once conducted yourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, When did this happen? He says, even when we were dead. Now obviously the dead this year is spiritual, it's not physical death, we're still physically alive. Even though we may sin against God. But spiritual death or separation from God is a result of sinful conduct. That we all have passed into that state when we've come to an age of accountability. And then done those things that God would not want us to do. We become sinners and we separate ourselves from God. And the Bible describes that as being dead. And we need to sense the helplessness that's involved in that language. That sin is portrayed exactly as that. Without the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, our sin is final. Our sin is hopeless. As, this, as much as the scene in the funeral home, we can do nothing to reverse that situation. We can't just continue to live our lives and say, well, I know what it says there, but it probably won't be that bad. It's probably not going to be that way. We can't anticipate that somehow we could have recovered on our own or that somehow it won't really be this way. Even if we stop sinning today, What we've already done guilty before God without the blood of Jesus Christ is absolutely final. We are dead. But God will make us alive again. The blood of Jesus will do that. And that's what Paul says here. He says here, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us, saved us by his grace. He loved us and so he had mercy upon us. He did not give us what we deserve. He provided grace for us, which means He gave us something that we did not deserve. He gave us a gift. And that gift is salvation. Just as assuredly as we were irretrievably and completely dead in our sins, God has made us completely alive again through the blood of His Son. No halfway to this. God brings us back to life fully spiritually. And I believe what that implies upon us as much as anything else is that it is not God's nature to leave us dead. He does not desire it. And in the final aspect, He does not leave us dead. He makes us alive again. But how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us here, He made us alive with Christ. He brings us back together again to life itself with Christ. Wherein is the force of our spiritual resurrection? How does it come about? How is it m- made possible? In this context, in the passage we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses several words, several phrases together that provide for us. And that is the idea that we are saved together with Christ. The prefix S-Y-N, meaning together with, Paul uses that prefix at a series of words here. This prefix. Greek preposition, a series of words to depict to us this aspect of our resurrection as it connects us with Jesus Christ. Some suggest that Paul even coined these words or these phrases in the context of this particular passage. Because he uses three verbs with the prefix sin to associate this aspect of our association with Christ. We are made alive with Christ in verse 5. We are raised up with Christ in verse 6. And we are made to sit together with Christ. So one thing we can recognize as Paul describes our spiritual resurrection is this doesn't happen on our own. That We're not resurrected out of our own power. We're not resurrected even because of who we are. Our resurrection takes place because we are with Christ. If you're not with Christ, you're still dead. Consistently then Paul describes the Christian as one who has been joined together with Christ in every aspect of his conversion, and in the very events of Jesus' life. Elsewhere, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 that he had been crucified with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, he says the Christian dies with Christ. In verse 4, he says that we're buried with Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, he says we're raised with Christ. Now, it's not hard to take those phrases where he joins us as Christians with Christ and recognize they refer to specific events in the life of our Lord. That the gospel story about the life of Jesus is not just a quaint biography. That God tells us what Jesus did and ultimately the events of His life because it's the very basis of our own salvation. If Jesus didn't come, we're not saved. But these events as well, the particular events, have a connection with our own salvation because we are joined together in those events with Him. Now, I don't go back in time. There's no time machine where I can be crucified with Jesus or I can be buried with Him in the same tomb. They're not, not physically joined together in the events. But the sequel of Jesus, of, the, of these events in Jesus' life is not very difficult to trace because Jesus did die and certainly he as a, as a clarification of his own identity as the son of God the father after three days brought him back to life and he was raised from the dead and we recognize that after he was raised from the dead after teaching the disciples about the kingdom for forty days that he stood with his disciples and he ascended back to heaven and he was raised to sit in heavenly places. Paul talks about him being exalted to the right hand of God and so he was raised to sit in heavenly places. We all know that about Jesus. We all accept that as fact that Jesus died, he was raised from dead, and he exalted to heavenly places. He is at the right hand of God. He's not dead. The preaching the gospel is based upon those facts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, moreover, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received: that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul condenses it down, doesn't it? Now that's not comprehensively all that's involved in the good news of the gospel, but If we're going to look at it in the context of what the gospel is, Paul relates it here, as we can as well, to those three things that happened to Jesus. These are the events that bring about our salvation that are absolutely good news. Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. Now, Christians are identified with Christ in all three of those events. As these historical, physical events were real, our participation in them though it's spiritual, is also just as real as the actual events. F.F. Bruce says this about what we're talking about. He says, If the raising of Christ from the dead to sit at his own right hand is the supreme demonstration of God's power, the raising of the people of Christ from spiritual death to share Christ's place of exaltation is the supreme demonstration of his grace. And I like that connection because that's certainly, I think, applicable. To what we see in the Gospel. That the events of Jesus' life and His own resurrection, being historically true and absolutely certain, apart from their ability to be connected to my life, have very little value to me. To know about them, to understand that they actually happened. If I'm apart from those events, if I'm separated from those events, then there is no power in my life. But there's grace. And God gives me the ability to participate in some sense, certainly to be connected with those events, and that itself is a demonstration of, of His grace. Paul's words in Colossians, I think, is an excellent commentary on what he we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. And it is littered with the SYN, the sin words. In Colossians chapter 2, he said, We are buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him having forgiven all your trespasses. So when Paul writes to the Colossian brother, he tells them the same thing about their own salvation. He says, you've been buried with him in baptism. And you are raised with him through faith in the working of God. Our spiritual resurrection with Christ is the beginning of a new life. Just as much as Jesus was completely dead and became completely back alive again, so you and I are completely dead in our sins and our life, our spiritual life is a brand new life, a naos life, that has an absolutely different, better quality, Kahinas new. And so when we think about this, we recognize that there is a real ability for us to be with Christ, to share with Christ, in the ultimate spiritual existence. In fact, in Paul's working passage here, when he says, you see that, we are raised to walk in newness of life. He talked about this from the standpoint of participating with Him in being raised to sit in heavenly places. Now there's a there's a sense in which that, that will become true. When we are resurrected from the grave and as Christians, we do not die the second death, but we go to be with the Lord. That's what Paul said. You know, I'm okay with dying because I go to be with the Lord. So we join the Lord in heaven... And therefore we are share with Him in that spiritual existence. But I would suggest to you too that the words that we will <clears throat> we are share with Him in heavenly places may also suggest a quality of life as opposed to a place that even when we become spiritually resurrected to become God's children, we live in a spiritually God-oriented existence rather than a life which is dominated by worldly pursuit. That the change of the Christian is not just in heaven itself, but rather it is even here and now because the Christian comes to recognize how to live with a spiritual perspective in his life. In the same same, uh, epistle in Colossians chapter 3, Paul said this, If then you were raised with Christ, there's that phrase again, If you're spiritually resurrected with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. You see, that's the other part of that, isn't it? You are raised with Christ when you become a Christian, and now you are going to live with Christ. So you are made spiritually new in terms of where you are, and now you're going to be made spiritually new in terms of how you live. And you are going to seek those things, not of this earth, but you're going to seek those things that are from above. Now, I think these, these particular uh, images of, of resurrection and being brought back to life are significant to us. And they become significant to us when we look at from the standpoint of how the apostles used this image to encourage Christians to do what is right. If we look at Romans chapter 6 and maybe this passage has already come to your mind. We you think about Paul's use of this terminology of connecting ourselves to the, to, to the events of Jesus' life. Paul said in Romans chapter 6: Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if you died with Christ, we believe that we also shall, shall, shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no longer has dominion over him. Now, when you read those passages, sometimes our first connection with those passages is this aspect of, of baptism. And we talk about the fact that baptism not only is a burial, but the idea here uh, that baptized, being baptized into a death and a resurrection puts baptism in its proper position in terms of salvation. That you die first, and then you're buried, and then you're resurrected. And Paul's certainly making that connection to the life of Jesus. But what Paul presents to us here is that we die with Christ to sin, and we are buried with Christ in baptism, and that we are resurrected with Christ to a new life. Paul's real point in these passages, or at least his primary point in these passages, is about this new life. And answering the question of whether or not the Christian could continue to sin because he's going to be forgiven of those sins. If grace is around and God's not going to hold us accountable for what we do because of the blood of Jesus, we could just go on and sin because grace will abound. And Paul says, no, 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 certainly not. Why? Because you have died with Christ and you have been buried with Christ and you have been raised with Christ to a new life. So what we recognize here, I believe, is that Paul is really arguing not so much for baptism as he was arguing from baptism. <coughs> as an as a encouragement to live a better life or to live a more holy life. And Paul's focus on this is that the power that brought Jesus back to life gives spiritual life to the Christian. Now, that's, I don't believe that's the language of mysticism. It indicates that, I, I believe, that the method through which God animates dead sinners is through the activity of the Spirit of God in that person's life. It's an interesting illustration of this aspect of how the spirit animates the Christian or how the idea of bringing something back to life is presented in that context in scripture. And I thought about bringing one bringing one with me to sort of illustrate that. But you reach in your pocket and you pull out a leather glove. You know, one of these work gloves. Like they use on the ranch. And you think, well what is this thing? Well, well, it's a glove. But it's really a dead cow, isn't it? I mean, a dead cow sewn up in a certain way so it fits your hand, but it's a dead cow. Can you bring it back to life? Can you make it live again? Well, you can command it, be alive. Come on, come on, club. You worked for dead, now be alive. Get thrown on the ground, tossing it around, it's still a dead cow. But then you stick your hand in it. And you start to move it. And it's animated. And it becomes alive again from the standpoint of what it is able to do. Why? Well, it's not the dead cowness, it's the you see the liveness of the hand that animates the glove. So the Christian is dead. He has no ability in any way to live before God in such a way that is right. But if the Spirit lives within him, if the Spirit of God motivates him, if the Spirit of God, you see, provides for him, not only knowing what to do, but only the motivation, the power to do what he ought to do, then the Christian is alive again. And so with the Spirit of God is that which provides for the life of the Christian. Jesus said in John chapter 14, a little longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I will also live. At that time you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me and I in you. At that time we're going to all be in each other. You and me and I and you and I'm in the Father. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love and manifest myself, myself too. You see he mentions all three persons again. You and me and the Father. The Father and Jesus and me. He mentions all three again. And he puts it in the context of keeping the commandments of God. How do I know that Jesus will be in me? That the Spirit of God is alive in me. If I keep the commandments of the Spirit. John chapter 15, then the next chapter. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So I'm given a new life. A new life because the life that's within me is not my life but the life of God. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 you see he says I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that how you view your life? Is that who you are? I was dead but now I'm alive again. How? Because Christ lives within me. Because what he, what he wants is what I want. What he's going to do is what I'm trying to do. Who he is is who I want to be. And the words of his spirit motivate the decisions of my life. And I aspire to be with him and I want to be like him. And his spirit moves me. You see our baptism was a beginning. It was a rebirth. It was a resurrection. I believe that what we recognize is that there's no more powerful way to look at our lives as Christians than to recognize that we once were dead, and now we are alive. We studied not too long ago the prodigal. You know that young boy who decided, I've had enough with this place, I'm out of here. And he said to his dad, give me what's mine, I'm out of here. And he took off to a far country, wasted all his inheritance on a riotous living. Came to where he was willing to eat the food of the pig, but nobody would give him even the food pig, the, the the pig food to eat. He was without anything, and he turned to himself and he said to himself, My father's house has plenty, even the servants there eat good, and I got nothing here without him. I will go to him. And he came to himself. And on his way, he rehearsed. He rehearsed his speech. This is what I'll say to my dad. I'll say, "Just make me a servant. I'll just be one of your slaves. Put me in the house down the road. Just give me something to eat. I'll do and be what you want me to be." And he came and took the curve, took, took around, came around the corner. His father saw him coming from afar off, and he ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him on the neck and said to him, "Said to his servants, get the, get the best coach you can find. Get the ring.'" Get the sandals for his feet. Put clothes back on. And this is my son who was gone. He was dead. But now he is alive. That's the way God sees us. And I suggest you that's the way we've got to see ourselves. That without Christ, we got nothing. If we're going to live, we have to live with Christ. Everything happens with Christ. Jesus changes everything. So if you would have life, you'd die with Him to sin. And if you would have life, you'd be buried with Him in the waters of baptism. Because when you're buried in the waters of baptism, you are buried with Christ. And then you come up out of those waters a new person. And you are raised with Christ. In a spiritual resurrection, through the power of Jesus' resurrection, you are made alive with Jesus. And as long as you stay with Jesus... You will never die. Will you be His child? Will you be alive with Jesus? Come while we stand and while we sing this song.